1 Corinthians chapter 15, starting at verse 12. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God. For we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If, if only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own turn, Christ, the first fruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. Then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, for he has put everything under his feet. Now when it says that everything has been put under him, it is clear that this does not include God himself, who puts everything under Christ. When he has done this, then the Son himself will be made subject to him, who put everything under him, so that God may be all in all. Now if there is no resurrection, what will those do who are baptised for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptised for them? And as for us, why do we endanger ourselves every hour? I die every day, I mean that brothers, just as surely as I glory over you in Christ Jesus our Lord. If I fought wild beasts in Ephesus for merely human reasons, what have I gained? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. Come back to your senses as you ought, and stop sinning, for there are some who are ignorant of God. I say this to your shame. Uh, friends, let's pray. Father, thank you for your word, and we do pray that as we... Uh, give attention to it now that you would be uh, informing us and transforming us. Uh, we pray also for the Sunday school as they uh, gather together. May it be a real encouraging and edifying time for them. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. A couple of years back there was a documentary on TV called The Lost Tomb of Jesus. Uh, the, uh, the story was that some archaeologists in Jerusalem had uh, uncovered a tomb which was from the first century and uh, it contained inside it ten boxes which uh, had at one time had inside them the bones of dead people. Uh, it was a family tomb and those boxes had the names of the people whose bones had been in those boxes. 
uh, names such as Jesus, the son of Joseph, Judas, the son of Jesus. There were two boxes with the name Maria uh, inscribed on them. And it was a controversial documentary because the people who made the doco made some claims. Uh, They claimed that in all likelihood that this was the family tomb, uh, not just of any Jesus, the son of Joseph, but that uh, it was the family tomb of the Jesus, the son of Joseph. Did anyone see the documentary? Remember it? Okay. And... um, uh, they made certain other claims from that. One of them was that uh, the um, uh, that, that Jesus had married had married Mary Magdalene. That's why there was two boxes with the word Maria written on them. Uh, that they had had a son together, who they called Judas, and that what this all meant, of course, was that Jesus did not rise from the dead because. Uh, his bones had been stored away in this box and had been placed in this tomb. Uh, One of the um, producers was James Cameron. He was the guy that made the Titanic. Uh, Listen to what he said in, or the movie, The Titanic. Uh, Listen to what he said in an interview on TV. He said, and I quote, to a layman's eye, uh, it seems pretty darn compelling Uh, This is the biggest archaeological story of the century. Now, the um, important words there are the words to the layman's eye, because as is often the case with this sort of thing, when you get some people who actually know what they're talking about critiquing uh, what's being presented, it's a different story. And uh, there were some experts who critiqued uh, these claims, and uh, they said that it was a load of nonsense, that uh, the fact that these boxes had those names inscribed on them didn't prove anything, uh, let alone uh, did not prove that Jesus had not been resurrected. The reality was that those names were simply amongst the most common names uh, in Palestine in in the first century. And so they could, it could have been the, the family tomb of anybody. It didn't prove anything. Now, for 2,000 years, Christians have believed in the resurrection of Jesus and we've done so on the basis of the evidence. Uh, last week, when we looked at the first part of 1 Corinthians 15, we saw that Paul presented some of the evidence for the resurrection And the evidence which he presented was the eyewitness accounts. Uh, He said that there were many people who had witnessed with their own eyes the resurrected Jesus. Uh, And that, of course, included himself. And the reason that he had to do this was because there were people in the Corinthian church who did not believe in the resurrection of Jesus. Uh, God may exist, but as for Jesus, he's finished. Uh, He is just a memory. It's all over for Jesus. He's dead and he's buried and that's it. So last week, Paul presented the evidence for the resurrection 
And he talked a little bit about the implications of the resurrection because if he said that if Christ has not been raised, then you are still in your sins. But in our passage today, Paul goes on to explain more about why the resurrection is so important. I wonder if you can uh, have your Bibles open at 1 Corinthians chapter 15. James Cameron may reckon that the resurrection or otherwise of Jesus is the issue of the century, but I take it that Paul would disagree with that. Paul would say that the resurrection of Jesus is not the issue of the century, it's actually the issue of all of existence. Um, There is simply nothing more important in history, there is nothing more important in the universe, there is nothing more important even in your life than the fact that Jesus was raised from the dead. That's how important it is. Now, why is that so? Why is the resurrection of Jesus the most important event in history? I wonder, um, firstly, if you've ever noticed sometimes when you're watching TV news uh, broadcasts, Uh, when they're doing something like a big event, such as, for example, 9-11, and the reporters comment by saying things like, the world has now changed forever. That's a common phrase that they use. We know what they mean, um, but in a sense you can even argue that every event that happens changes the world forever in some small way. But friends, in the whole history of the world, there are two events which have truly changed the world forever. I'm going to look at those two events in verses 20 to 22. Let me read those for you. Paul says in verse 20, But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. Now in the Garden of Eden, one event changed everything. What was that event? It was the sin of Adam. Uh, Satan had tempted Adam and Eve to uh, rebel against God. They did so. And the punishment for sin is death. Now, you and I, we have all descended from Adam. Uh, A couple of months ago, I turned 50. And three days after I turned 50, I noticed I had a problem with one of my eyes. So I trotted along to the optometrist and he had a look at my eye. He didn't know anything about my birthday. And he said to me, Scott, this is what happens to people after they turn 50. Now, friends, our body clock is ticking away. Have you noticed that? You notice your body clock ticking away? Yeah, some more so than others. Um, And mine is ticking away right on time, (laughs) apparently. And the reason for that, the reason why we're kind of winding down is because we have all inherited Adam's sinful nature. And what that means is that we also therefore inherit, we share Adam's destiny, which ultimately is the grave. 
In Romans 5 verse 12, Paul says more about that. But the point is this, that that one event in the garden has truly changed history forever. But so too did the one event on Easter Sunday, the resurrection of Jesus. The first event uh, brought death into the world forever. The second event reverses death. The resurrection of Jesus brings life. Resurrection life for us. Now, they say that a picture speaks a thousand words, and that's why I've chucked that picture on the uh, screen there. Uh, a picture of a uh, heart monitor flatlining. You know it's hap what's happened when the, when the heart monitor flatlines, don't you? And then there's the question, then what? And that's the age-old question. That's the question that people have been asking for as long as we know. What happens after we die? Now, in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul answers that question, but I need to say that he only answers that question of what happens after we die for those who belong to Christ. Uh, in other parts of the scripture, uh, uh, Paul and other writers deal with that issue of the eternal destiny of those who do not belong to Christ and that is a future of unalterable and eternal separation from God. That is not what you want for yourself and that is what, why we need to be telling people about Jesus and his salvation. But what about Christians? What happens to us after we die? Um, verse 23 in verse 23, Paul says, But each in his own turn, Christ the firstfruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. When a Christian dies, what happens to us? Here we see that there is an order of events. First of all, Christ was resurrected. And by the way, that was a bodily resurrection. The resurrected Jesus was not a spirit that was floating around like a ghost or something rather. Uh, the scriptures make that quite clear. Christ was resurrected in his body. Now, uh, it was a different kind of body to his pre-resurrection body, uh, but it was a body nevertheless. It's actually a better body and we're going to learn more about that next week in the next section of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. But the important point here is that because his resurrection is a bodily resurrection, then so too is our resurrection a bodily resurrection. Jesus is the forerunner. Uh, in verses 20 and also in verse 23, Paul says it's like a, um, it's like a fruit farmer, an orchardist. Uh, when the farmer sees the first fruit ripen, then he knows that there's an entire harvest that is just around the corner. Jesus is the first fruit. His bodily resurrection is the guarantee of our bodily resurrection. 
But in verse 23, when will this happen? It happens when he comes. Uh, Friends, the Bible teaches us that one day the resurrected Jesus will return. Now, we do not know when that will happen. Uh, There is a good reason that we do not know when that will happen and that is because the Bible does not tell us when it will happen and the Bible doesn't tell us when it will happen because uh, really we need to be expecting it to be happening at any time and ready for it. Uh, we, you, have you sometimes come across people who kind of want to calculate all these prophecies in the Bible and do the arithmetic and the sums on that and then tell you a date as to when Jesus is going to return? Uh, sometimes you hear about this. Uh, if, you, if anyone reckons they know when Jesus is going to return, then all sorts of warning bells should be kind of ringing in your head. Um, the Jehovah's Witnesses... They came up with their calculation. They, back in the 19th century, they calculated that Jesus was going to return in 1914. Now, when the calendar kind of rolled on over to 1915, they were in a bit of a pickle, weren't they? Uh, How did they resolve that? Well, they said that Jesus did return. It's just that he returned in his spirit and nobody noticed. I'm going to tell you, friends, when Jesus returns, because his resurrection is a bodily resurrection, he's not returning in spirit, he's returning in body. And do you reckon no one's going to notice? No, the whole world will notice. It will be clear to everybody when he returns. Be wary of people who tell you they know when the second coming will happen. Uh, In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 16 and 17, when Christ returns, those who are dead in Christ will be raised first. Uh, It's a bit like in Matthew's Gospel. Remember what happened after the crucifixion of Jesus uh, when the sun turned turned black and uh, Jesus died and there was an earthquake and uh, tombs were split open and holy people who had died were brought back to life and they were actually seen walking around for days afterwards. Remember that? Incredible passage. But it's a forerunner. It teaches us of what will happen when Jesus returns when the dead in Christ are physically raised, as Paul says here and also in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. In 1 Thessalonians 4, he says that after the dead in Christ are raised, then those who are still living, Christians who are still living at the time of the second coming, uh, will actually then be caught up with them and with Christ in the heavenlies forever. Uh, You see a little bit of that in next week's passage, but let's have a look at it now in chapter 15, verse 51. In verse 51, Paul says, Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. 
More about that next week. Now, what all of this does is that it raises the obvious question of what happens to believers between the time of our death and the time of Christ's return. What, if, if our bodies are resurrected when Jesus returns, then what about our souls? Uh, there's a few different thoughts on this and the, the biblical teaching is not as clear as sometimes we might want it to be, but that's because there's a deliberate ambiguity there. God only reveals to us what we need to know. But uh, one view is that uh, the, the soul dies with the body and then awaits the resurrection. Another view is that the soul goes into an unconscious state until the resurrection. Uh, the Roman Catholic view of purgatory, uh, which says that the soul goes to another place called purgatory where there's a second chance to repent, well, that's just repugnant to the word of God. That's false. Uh, there's no uh, teaching of that in scripture at all and that denies uh, the uh, importance of actually turning to Christ before you die. Uh, when we look at the Bible, it seems that the soul is in a fully conscious state, uh, a state of bliss, a state of peace with God. Uh, and some of the passages that head in that direction would be, um, for example, uh, when on the cross Jesus speaks to the repentant thief. And what does he say to him? He says to him, you will be with me in paradise when? Today. Today you will be with me in paradise. Uh, the Apostle Paul in passages like in Philippians chapter 1 uh, verses 22 to 24 where Paul is wrestling with his own desires as to whether or not he would prefer to remain alive and keep on ministering, serving God and ministering to people, or whether he would prefer to die and be with Christ, which he says is better by far, well, uh, it's hard to see how dying and going into an unconscious state uh, is better than serving God through serving his people, uh, or for that matter, um, going you know, for the soul to actually die. Uh, in another passage in Philippians, Paul says that to live is Christ and to die is gain. And so there's good reason to uh, hold that the soul uh, goes to be with Christ. But that the important point here is that the final completion and the satisfaction of our eternal salvation happens when Christ returns and when we are resurrected bodily, when we are giving new, perfect and heavenly bodies. Again, more about that next week. Friends, where is the world as we know it heading? Sustainability is the new buzzword, isn't it? Uh, people seem to think that uh, if only we take care of the planet, which we should do, 
that if we take care of the planet, then human civilization is going to keep on rolling on and rolling on and rolling on forever. But in this passage, we see that there is an end point. Verse 24. Paul says, Then the end will come when he, Jesus, hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, for he has put everything under his feet. Now when it says everything has been put under him, it is clear that this does not include God himself who put everything under Christ. When he has done this, the Son himself will be made subject to him who put everything under him so that God may be all in all. Now the word there which is translated as the end is a word which has built into it the whole concept of perfection. Uh, It is that end point of history to which our world is heading under the sovereign plan and will of God. Our world is heading to an end point. Now, a lot of people would think that the end of the world must be something catastrophic, but that is not the case. In the biblical teaching, the the end of the world as we know it is a great thing. It is actually God's plan for the reversal of the effects of the fall. And why is it such a good thing? Well, it will happen only because, as we see in these verses, that Christ will have destroyed all authority, power and dominion. That is, the authority of the one who tempted Adam and Eve, the authority of the one who brought sin and death into the world, his authority will have been destroyed. Now how does Christ destroy the authority of Satan? How does Christ conquer death and bring life? I wonder if you might come with me to Colossians chapter 2 for a moment, uh, on page 834, where in verse 15, Paul, having spoken about what Christ has done on the cross, that Christ has paid the penalty for our guilt by being our substitute, he says in verse 15, that having disarmed the powers and authorities, that he made a public public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. It was on the cross that the victory over death has been won because the power and the authority that Satan had over us was the guilt of our sin. It was because of the guilt of our sin that we were heading towards Satan's eternal destiny. But Christ, by dying on the cross in our place, 
has disarmed Satan. He has taken away that which that finger that pointed against us. And then the resurrected Jesus poured out his Holy Spirit. And as the message of the gospel, friends, is spread around the world throughout the ages, uh, countless millions of people have uh, been rescued from the tyranny of sin and of death. And they find forgiveness and will find forgiveness and eternal life in naming the resurrected Jesus as their king. In Colossians 1 verse 13, Paul says this. He says, For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin. Uh, You see, the death and the resurrection of Jesus has defeated Satan already. Um, Satan is still around and he will do whatever damage he thinks he can do. But his, his fate is sealed. As the hymn writer says, his doom is writ. And what remains is the mopping up operation. And when Jesus returns, he will deal with that. But until then, you and I ought to continue to preach and to spread the gospel. Now, if you turn back to 1 Corinthians 15, uh, Paul tells us that at that point in history, when Jesus returns, that at that point, his work as ruler will be complete. And in verse 28, in heaven, Jesus will hand back all his authority to God the Father. Uh, There's a beautiful picture of heaven in Revelation chapter 21 where it says that now the dwelling of God is with men and he will live with them, they will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. See, brothers and sisters, this heavenly hope is all dependent upon the resurrection of Jesus. But there were still those people in the Corinthian church who denied the resurrection. And so in verses 29 to 34, um, Paul says, well, if the dead are not raised, then why bother? Uh, Firstly, he says, why should those people bother? those Corinthians, Uh, because it seems that for some weird reason that they had been conducting baptisms for dead people. Now, there's obvious problems there which Paul chooses not to go into, but he makes this point. He says, why bother baptising dead people if dead people are not raised from the dead? Why bother? And secondly, he says, why should he bother? Uh, In verses 30 to 32, Paul says that he suffers for the sake of Christ. I mean, he says, why did I have to fight wild beasts beasts in Ephesus? Uh, That's metaphoric. Um, Anyone who knows anything about the ancient world knows that if you get put into the arena with wild beasts, you don't come out alive. 
but that's how serious Paul's suffering for the sake of the gospel was. And he says, well, why should I fight wild beasts in Ephesus if the dead are not raised? What would be the point? And then thirdly, he said, why should anyone bother? I mean, if the dead are not raised, then who cares? Who gives a fig? Who gives two hoots? If the dead are not raised, then let's just kind of live it up. Let's just party time. Let's just eat and drink and be merry and die. Because without resurrection, there is no meaning, there is no ultimate purpose. It doesn't matter how you live. There's no day of judgment. Just have a good time if you're one of the people who are lucky enough to be able to have a good time. If you're not one of those people, well, he makes no comment. I was chatting with a friend of mine during the week who's not a believer. And he is wrestling with some real struggles with life and also with death, with bereavement. And he said to me, Scott, I just don't understand. Why? What's it all about? Where's it all heading? What is the point? And I said to him, well, I guess that this is why, this is where it may be helpful to actually think about what the Bible says about resurrection. And he said, yeah, I know, but, but how can we know what happens after we die? I said to him, well, I reckon it would be helpful if there was someone who came back from the dead who could tell us, don't you? And he said, yeah. Problem is that there's only one person who's ever come back from the dead. And how do we know the fact that he came back from the dead means that we can come back from the dead as well? I'm preparing this sermon at the time. I said to him, well, the way that the Bible puts it, it's like, you know, the, the fruit farmer, that when he sees the first piece of fruit ripen, he knows that there's a whole harvest that's going to come. Friends, do you sometimes have doubts about heaven? About the bodily resurrection of Jesus? Well, that bodily resurrection of Jesus, that is God's guarantee that if you trust in Christ, then you too will rise. Not with this old, sagging, deteriorating body, but with a new body, one which is a resurrection body, one which you will have for all of eternity. More about that next week. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you that you have a sovereign plan for all of history and that it is purposed in Christ. We thank you, Father God, that Jesus has indeed been raised from the dead and that because of that, that we are guaranteed of our resurrection. We pray that we would be people who are motivated in life by that reality that Jesus will return 
and that uh, there is a day of judgment and that we need to be in Christ. We pray, Father God, that uh, as we wait for the glorious appearing of our great God and Saviour Jesus, that we would be people who live holy and upright lives. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.